Ever bought a pencil before? I have. Have you ever fought with your sisters about colored pencils? No. False. Oh. You have. Okay. Hello, folks. Matt Hunsaker here for the State Tax Show. On this week's episode, we take a deep dive into the sales tax manufacturing exemption. Our subject today, the sales tax manufacturing exemption. Now, before you hit the stop button, bear with me for a bit. This is actually quite an interesting topic, even if it may not apply to your particular job. When I tell people that a fair amount of what I do with sales tax work, they kind of give me a sideways look. And when I look at their face, it's almost as if they're thinking, come on, buddy. How hard is it to multiply the price of a candy bar by 6%. And that's pretty much all the public sees when it comes to sales tax. But you and I know better. We know that behind the scenes, sales and use tax could be downright complicated. And nowhere is that more so than when it comes to the manufacturing exemption. To understand why we have the manufacturing exemption, we need some background. Sometimes I'm guilty of glossing over background, assuming that everyone knows what I'm talking about. So to solve that problem, I'm going to explain the background to why we have the manufacturing exemption to my super smart daughter, who I might add has gone to great lengths to avoid learning anything about state tax. Welcome, Abby. Hi, Dad. How's it going? Pretty good. Hey, do you know what a sales tax is? Uh, yeah, it's the tax when you buy stuff from the store. Okay. A sales tax is often called a consumption tax. Any reason why that might be? Because you're consuming something? Pretty simple. Well, a good consumption tax is imposed on the final consumer. Me, right? Yes, that would be you. To help you understand what makes a good consumption tax, we need to talk a little bit about pencils. Ever bought a pencil before? I have. Have you ever fought with your sisters about colored pencils? No. False. Oh. You have. Okay. So what goes into the price of a pencil? Um, the materials, the wood, the graphite, etc. Anything else? The machines to put the pencil together. Okay. Do you buy your pencils directly from the pencil manufacturer? No. Where do you buy your pencils? The store. And where does the store get their pencils? The manufacturers. So the store buys to the manufacturers, or sometimes the manufacturer will sell to a distributor who will then sell to a bunch of stores. What would happen if the manufacturer had to pay sales tax when it bought the wood and graphite and rubber, and it had to pay sales tax on the equipment it used to make the pencil? And the distributor had to pay sales tax when it bought the pencils from the manufacturer. And then the store had to pay sales tax when it bought the pencils from the uh, distributor. And then you had to pay sales tax when you bought it. 
that would be a very expensive pencil. And why is that? Because the sales tax would just keep adding up until it got to you. Okay, so each step that sales tax that they paid would get added into the cost. Yeah. And eventually you'd have a pretty expensive pencil. Yes. We in the tax world call that tax pyramiding. Would you think that tax pyramiding makes a good consumption tax or a bad one? A bad one. And why is that? Because it's taxing other people that aren't just the final consumer. Excellent. All right. So to avoid pyramiding, we allow an exemption for the manufacturer's purchase of materials. And we don't tax the sales from the manufacturer to the distributor, from the distributor to the retailer, and we just tax the sale when you go to the store with your babysitting money and buy a pencil. But what about the cost of the equipment that makes the pencil? What happens if you tax that? It'd make the pencil more expensive again. Why? Because the tax would get included into our tax, that, or the cost that we have to pay. Okay. And then you'd pay sales tax on that cost. So Yeah. We would have a little bit of pyramiding again. Mm-hmm. Okay, Abby, are you pretty smart? Kind of. Okay. <laughs> if you were designing a good sales tax, how would you tax manufacturing equipment? I wouldn't tax manufacturing equipment. Thank you, Abby. You're welcome, you Dad. You can now go back to your regularly scheduled life. Perfect. Bye, guys. It's been real. Most states are as smart as Abby and have exempted machinery and equipment used in manufacturing to avoid pyramiding sales tax. But that's not the only reason why. Another reason why the manufacturing exemption exists is to promote in-state manufacturing jobs. Politicians love manufacturing jobs. And by exempting manufacturing equipment, a state makes it less costly to operate in their state than in rival states that tax the equipment. You can call me cynical, but I think this drives the move towards manufacturing exemptions much more than any interest in creating a purer consumption tax. Let's dig in a bit on the complexities of the manufacturing exemption. Before we can decide if equipment is exempt, we've got to know what manufacturing is. When I think of manufacturing, my mind goes back to Mr. Rogers. Every few episodes, he would include a video of something being manufactured at a plant. And I always loved that. Of course, it was always followed up by that creepy uh, trip to, what was it called, the make-believe land, which I'm pretty sure still gives me nightmares. In any event, I'd love to give you an answer of what manufacturing is. Heck, I'd love to give you half a dozen answers. But the fact of the matter is that states are all over the board on how they define manufacturing. A common theme is that the process must change the physical form or composition of the thing being manufactured. So this means you need to take some inputs and either have an output that is, say, chemically different or has a different form. Want some examples? One court held that crushing rocks until they were pulverized was manufacturing even though the input, the big rocks, and the output the smaller rocks, were essentially still the same stuff, just smaller. Other states have said the opposite. Another example would be taking fibers and weaving them into a cloth. Still the same stuff, but just a different form. And some states are pretty liberal as to what constitutes another form. 
For example, in Texas, compressing natural gas to a customer-specified pressure is treated as manufacturing. And when I say manufacturing, states often will refer to as manufacturing, processing, producing. I'm just going to say manufacturing, even though there may be some nuances there. The takeaway from all this is that you have to look very closely at the law in the state you are working in to see how they define manufacturing. But not just that, you also have to really dig in and see how the taxing authorities interpret those statutes. Often the statutes can be very similar among states, but the states may implement them in completely different ways. Okay, that's enough on what is manufacturing. The next puzzle we need to solve here is determining when manufacturing starts and when it stops. Equipment used before or after manufacturing, typically not exempt. These issues usually creep up when you're dealing with equipment used to move stuff around. For example, in Ohio, the Supreme Court held that forklift equipment used by a sawmill to move logs around the yard were not used in manufacturing because sorting and stacking the logs were activities preparatory to manufacturing. They were before manufacturing. We also have to look at when manufacturing ends. I had a fun matter a long time ago in Indiana that addressed when manufacturing ended. In a lot of states, including Indiana, electricity is treated as tangible property, so generating it is treated as manufacturing. Now, I personally have always wanted to be an electrical engineer, and I had my chance that day in Indiana. You see, they had a private letter ruling on the books that said that manufacturing stopped as soon as the electricity was generated, and any equipment downstream from that was not exempt. Well, that didn't work for my clients, so I got to spend a day with their policy staff explaining how transformers step up the voltage of generated electricity to transmission voltage, and that that process of stepping up the voltage of the electricity is a change in the characteristic or form of the electricity and is therefore manufacturing. And by golly, they agreed and changed their position. Now, the issue of when manufacturing ends is usually not quite that technical. It usually relates to packaging. For example, Ohio said that beer manufacturing ended at pasteurization, and as a result, labeling equipment was not exempt. Another place where manufacturers get tripped up is a requirement that many states have that the equipment must be directly used in making the physical change to the product. I've seen a lot of really heated litigation over this particular point. Some states take a pretty hard stance. They want to see the equipment touch the product. Let's look at an example in Connecticut. There was a company that used milling machines to manufacture molds. No question, the milling machines were exempt. But the company used computers to convert blueprints into numeric design codes on paper tape. That tape then got fed into the milling machines to instruct them on how to make the mold. I'm sure that was very cutting edge at the time. The court said that because the computer system never touched the mold materials, it was not exempt. But today, most states are leaning towards exempting equipment that controls manufacturing equipment. But what about equipment that is used for exempt and non-exempt uses? Well, and this is a familiar theme here, states are all over the board on this. Some deny the exemption if you make any non-exempt use. 
Some allow it if any exempt use is made. Others will allow it if the equipment is used predominantly in manufacturing. And some will make you pay a divergent use tax on the rental value of using the equipment in non-exempt uses. One area where this really gets problematic is with utilities that power equipment and also power warehouses and offices. Some states may require you to get an engineer to produce a report establishing how much of the utilities are used for the exempt purpose. Now, what if someone hires you to manufacture something that you don't sell? We often call that a sub-manufacturer. Some states will exempt your equipment. And this makes sense from a policy perspective because your costs that you charge the company that hired you are going to get baked into their cost of goods sold when they eventually sell the product. But some states don't see it this way and will disallow the exemption if you are not selling the good. Now, as you can see, the list of issues is pretty long. I could go on and on about things like whether writing software is manufacturing. In some states it is or whether agricultural activities manufacturing. Seriously, I could spit out issues on this for hours, but I won't. But I will leave this topic with one final point, and that is the integrated plant concept. States that take this approach are great. The basic theory is that a manufacturing operation is an integrated operation, and that everything that goes into it should be exempt. What this means is that equipment that doesn't make a physical change to the product can be exempt if it's part of the overall manufacturing plant. It's kind of like an organic approach that treats the manufacturing process as a creature and everything that is necessary to making that creature spit out the final product is exempt. From a policy standpoint, this is very simple and I think the integrated plant concept, if done right, is really the gold standard. Well, I'm sure your head is spinning. Mine is. But next time someone gives you that sideways look when you tell them that you deal with sales tax, you can take a little pride in knowing a little more about what is really going on behind the scenes. Well, that's it for this week. I'll be back next Monday with a brand new episode of the State Tax Show. Until then, have a great week. State Tax Show Podcast is produced by Baker and Hostetler, LLP, and is for informational purposes only. It is intended to inform our clients and other friends of the firm about current legal developments of general interest. Issues discussed should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners should not act upon the information contained in this podcast without professional counsel. In some jurisdictions, this podcast may constitute attorney advertising. Please visit BakerLaw.com for more information about our practices and experience.